Well, thank you very much for leading, Richard. And thank you for joining with us this morning. You are very welcome again. It's good to see everyone here. Lovely to hear uh, babies this morning crying and calling mummy and daddy. And you don't need to worry about that if you're a parent, by the way. And that's a, that's a great thing. Uh, I thought I heard someone, I don't know who it was, someone shouting Abba just when we went to pray, which was, which was really encouraging. I don't know. Yeah, could be wrong, but I thought I did. Anyway, let's turn to the book of Malachi. And we're looking at Malachi chapter 2. And we'll be reading from verse 10. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say... Why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Bib label lithiated lemon lime soda, which is now called 7-Up, once contained lithium right up until 1950, it contained lithium, and it was used as a drug in psychiatric treatment of mental disorders. Now it's a very popular soft drink. Sometimes you can reshape and twist something from its original purpose and design and actually improve the product. Not the same with marriage, but that hasn't stopped many people from trying, as we know. So we've been thinking about marriage already throughout our service. What is the purpose of marriage? Why should we strive to protect and defend marriage? Because it is a picture of the gospel by which we were saved. Whenever we cheapen marriage, disfigure it, redefine it, or abuse it, we cheapen, disfigure, redefine, and abuse the gospel of Jesus Christ, if that were possible. He is the lover of our souls who died for us, his bride, and will return to take us to dine at this wedding supper that he has prepared for us. Marriage is a biblical institution. Its author is God. He is also its protector. Marriage is not in God's plan for everyone. You're not more spiritual or less spiritual if marriage is not in God's plan for you. But we should all still be able to affirm that it is a good gift from God which promotes human flourishing and illustrates the gospel itself when done right. 
But when it is corrupted, it can be disastrous. So too the third dispute between God and his people Israel. And this time it concerns unbiblical marriage and unbiblical divorce. These are not easy topics to cover, but they're in God's word. And so I hope to be faithful to the text. We'll look firstly at unbiblical marriage in verses 10 to 12 and part of 13. Like the last section, this third one opens with an uncontroversial question. God says through Malachi, have we not all one father? God is Israel's father, according to chapter 1, verse 6. And in Israel, as in many cultures today, the father had the final say on arranging marriages for his children. Someone said God was the father of the bride at every one of Israel's wedding ceremonies. So God is reminding Israel that he has absolute authority in all of life, including their marriage covenants. Malachi says God has fathered us of all the people on the planet. He has chosen us to enter into a loving covenant with. He's not just their father. He's also described as their creator. This builds the impact of question three in verse 10. Given that we owe our very existence to God, given that he has fathered us, Malachi asks, why are we so faithless to one another? It's even stronger in the Christian Standard Bible and others. It says, why do we deal treacherously each against his brother? Treacherously is such a strong emotive word that we hardly have cause for using it today in our language. But Malachi uses this strong language, this word, five times in such a short section. It's betrayal or cheating language. Betraying one another in relationships is so serious to God that Malachi says it profanes the covenant itself. Back in chapter 1, it was polluted food on the altar that polluted the Lord's table. Whenever something unclean touches something clean and holy, it pollutes it, makes it unsuitable for sacred service. Here, it's their personal relationships, particularly marriage, that was violating the covenant. Verse 11 says, the abominable sin was marrying the daughter of a pagan god, intermarriage with other false religions. What was the problem that God had with Israelites marrying non-Israelites? Well, we know it's not an, eth an ethnicity issue. We can think of someone like Boaz who married Ruth, who was a, a God-fearing woman, but she was from Moab, one of Israel's enemy nations. Israel's covenant relationship with God was far more important than their national identity or their ethnicity. Here's the issue, and it's outlined by officials who came to Ezra around about this time and said the people of Israel and their priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of the land. There you have the problem. Israel was marrying people of pagan nations with their abomination. It's the same word in Malachi. 
it was an abomination to God because it was a union between his chosen people and people who hated God and worshipped idols. Ezra revealed that it was all strata of society, including the priests who were to set an example, that followed this wickedness. Malachi says this intermarriage profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. How so? Well, in Psalm 114, Judah is called God's sanctuary, the place that he chooses to dwell. It can be translated the holiness of the Lord, which he loves. God's people are his sanctuary. God does not live in temples created by human hands. He lives in us by his spirit. And he loves his people, like he said at the very start of Malachi. For someone God loves and marries, to be united with someone who hates God is to pollute not just that couple, but the people of God. And so it's said that they must be cut off completely. Interracial, interethnic marriage is a wonderful thing. Interreligious marriage, according to God's word, is an abomination. This was one of God's first prohibitions when he brought Israel out of Egypt. For thousands of years, probably about a thousand years or so, the people have seen the devastating consequences of marrying non-Israelites, chiefly from Solomon and his many pagan women, who were told turned his heart away. And yet Israel cheated on God repeatedly, but in his mercy... He did not break his covenant with them. He was faithful, as he is always faithful. You might be wondering, at this time of Israel's history, why were Israel intermarrying? Why do this abominable thing? Two probable motivations are money and sex. Israel was impoverished by their exile. Now they're living under Persian rule. The nations that surrounded them were the ones with the money and the influence. If they were to ally with those nations through marriage, they might be able to get a financial boost. But these pagan nations also allowed men to take extra wives if they got bored with their first, and they allowed or even encouraged women to be used as sex objects. Whereas God's desire for marriage is that husband and wife be united as one flesh equally, complementary to each other, to be respected to be treated with love and respect for all of life. So today, is it any less abominable in God's sight if a believer of Jesus Christ unites with an unbeliever in marriage? Now, I want to be clear. I'm talking specifically about a situation where a Christian knows they're choosing to marry someone who openly rejects the Lord and will inevitably model ungodliness to their spouse. Because Paul is very clear in 1 Corinthians. He says, any brother who has a wife who is an unbeliever or a woman who has an unbelieving husband and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So if you've already entered into an unequally yoked marriage or you've come to faith whilst married to an unbeliever, you clearly should not divorce your spouse. But equally clear is what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? 
What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Christians must not knowingly marry unbelievers because they belong to a different kingdom, two opposite allegiances, two opposite masters, and two opposite worldviews are represented in an unequal yoke. Paul wasn't actually specifically talking about marriage in that passage, and so it applies to a lot of other things in our lives. But if you are married to an unbeliever, continue to live in such a way that demonstrates the love of God, and may the church join you in prayer for your spouse's salvation. Now, we should also understand the frustration of many Christian singles. I've had friends who've looked around their churches and they find no suitable marriage partner, but at work, they're getting plenty of attention from unbelievers. And the temptation is strong for them to rationalize. God's put this attractive single in my life. She doesn't even mind me going to church on a Sunday. Why can't I just go out with her? Because marriage is not two individuals living as two individuals. It's two individuals joining as a one flesh partnership. And to quote Paul again, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Now, to lighten things a bit, I was looking into a very, very uh, lucrative market, very popular thing, uh, which is online dating, particularly online Christian dating, as I've friends who have actually met and led happily married lives through online Christian dating. And I saw that discernment is crucial because this was one of the examples of a, a Christian man's bio, his explanation of himself. He calls himself a faith-filled fitness freak, which is easier to read than say. He says, I'm a Christ-centered gym enthusiast seeking a workout partner and soulmate to share a life of faith, fitness, and fun. My ideal match would be someone who loves Jesus, enjoys staying active, and appreciates a good dad joke. Depending on the order of those priorities, you may want to scroll on or swipe. I don't know how it works. But discernment is crucial if you're single. And Christians who are not single should never forget those who are, who have a desire to be married. We need to remember to pray for God's leading in the lives of our single Christian brothers and sisters. Now back to Malachi chapter 2 and look at verse 12. Malachi prays that these faithless Israelites would be cut off from the community of faith. They've already demonstrated by their actions that they're willing to abandon the covenant and the community of faith because they wanted to pursue ungodly marriages. But God, they protest at the end of verse 12, we bring our offering to you. Well, God has already said throughout this prophecy that he doesn't accept fake worship. He's not interested in meaningless offerings, and they were treating the Lord like the false gods of their unholy marriages. How do we know that? Well, idols could not feed themselves, and so the idolaters would try to manipulate them with food offerings. They would give food and hope that they would get something out of it. God cannot be mocked, nor can he be bribed to overlook sin. Verse 13 shows more evidence of the people treating the Lord like a common idol. Because 
their weeping and their groaning. That was part of the pagan worship ritual too. They would drench these idols with tears, hoping to extract compassion from a stone. Or maybe these were crocodile tears, not true contrition, but frustration that God has not blessed them or answered their prayers. Whatever these tears were, God detested them. Now, being emotional in your worship is to be encouraged. It doesn't necessarily have to be visible emotion, but it is an evidence that God's grace has affected your life. Emotionalism is wrong. Many church budgets, great chunk of them go into mood lighting, sound engineering, other subtle mood manipulations to produce sentimental feelings as if that represents more authentic worship. The heart of worship is a focus on Christ, not a focus on feeling good about yourself. And yet, there is something to be said for us Baptists showing more affection in our praise. But this seems to be people who were treating the true Lord God like all of their other pagan idols. And they're mixing the ways they would worship these idols with the ways they worshiped God. And so we've learned that marriage is a spiritual union, not just a physical union. To overemphasize the physical, as our culture does, can damage the spiritual and disrespects the designer of marriage. The culture says appearance first, God says heart first. Now, physical attraction, attraction is important, but not as, mu- not as important as the person's attitude to God. Sharing interests with one another is important too, but it's not as important as sharing faith. I've learned not to try and force Claire to enjoy watching basketball, and she never tries to force me to enjoy Downton Abbey, for example. But it is good to take an interest in each other's interests and to keep the main things, the main things. The spice you enter into a lifelong covenant before God with is more than someone to cozy up to in front of the fire on a Saturday night, more than someone to vent to when the day at work has been unbearable. Those are two blessings of marriage. But primarily your marriage is a spiritual union wherein you worship together, you pray and read scripture together, you build each other up in the faith. To marry an unbeliever is to rob yourself of that and to twist God's intention. So this would be an unbiblical marriage situation. But secondly, verses 13 to 16, we see unbiblical divorce. If we haven't been directly impacted by divorce, we all know someone who has. It's tragic. It breaks hearts, homes, harmony. God speaks about it, and so we can't avoid this difficult and emotive issue. But God too knows intimately what it is like to be married to an unfaithful wife who repeatedly committed spiritual adultery and ran after other lovers. In Jeremiah, God sent Israel away with a certificate of divorce for all of her adulteries. But later, he pursues her, he forgives her, and he restores that relationship through his own gracious initiative. You may know the prophecy of Hosea, where God illustrates Israel's unfaithfulness in a stark way, and there too, he forgave 
pursued her, and even promised to betroth her to him forever in a faithful, steadfast relationship. I want to make some observations about verses 13 to 16, but I want to spend more time looking at God's design for marriage in light of what we're taught in his word. Verse 14 talks about your wife by covenant. It's probably the closest thing we have in the Old Testament to a reference to a marriage document. But marriage has always been a formal institution, recognized by witnesses, even in this period of Israel's history, when polygamy was often tolerated. And the people are still asking, why doesn't God accept our offerings? Because their hearts are so far from him. And one proof that God picks out of many others is marital infidelity, betraying their wife, their companion by covenant. That word companion is important. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, it speaks of the seams that join curtains or the combining of building joints and construction. It's a cementing together of two separate things into one solid foundation. That should be an easy image for us to grasp. Marriage as a unit was designed to be the solid foundation upon which families are built to thrive. God talks about the wife of their youth. This was the one their fathers would have selected for them. The men of Israel being fed up with their wife and divorcing them to go after non-Israelite women was not just dishonoring the wife of their youth, but also their parents and ultimately their God. I wonder if you agree with John Piper. He said, staying married is not mainly about staying in love. It is about keeping covenant. Till death do us part is a sacred covenant promise, the same kind Jesus made with his bride when he died for her. Interesting. Now we come to verse 15, and this is widely considered one of the hardest verses in the whole of the Old Testament to translate. Verse 16 is a close competitor. Some English translations emphasize God being one, as in one God made the husband and wife. Others emphasize God making the husband and wife one, as in one flesh. There's no big deal with those differences. We know that God is one, and we know that he made husband and wife to be joined as a a one flesh union of body and spirit. So it may not be clear what three quarters of this verse is trying to say, but the last point is clear. Do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Malachi is abundantly clear, even if the exact verbs are not. Malachi goes back to Genesis when talking about marriage and divorce, which is exactly what Jesus did when he talked about them. In verse 10, God is their creator, Genesis 1. In verse 14, marriage is a covenant, Genesis 2, not between husband and wife alone, but between husband, wife, and God himself. Now in verse 15, he says the purpose of marriage is godly offspring, Genesis 2 again. God's purpose for sexual intimacy is a sacrificial act of love and procreation leading to children being raised to know, love, and worship God. God has never been ambiguous about the responsibility that parents have to teach their children about him. And we are blessed in this church to have many youth leaders, Sunday school leaders, 
but the primary responsibility for teaching children to be godly still lies with parents. But it's great to have support. It's really important for God that godly offspring be raised in marriage. Now, it's not addressed here, but what about childlessness? One childless couple has called it that strange grief which has no focus for its tears and no object for its love. But the focus of your tears and the object of your love is still God. We all know childless couples who amaze us with their loving commitment to God and to his people, despite their very real sadness. What an example those couples are who have a legitimate reason to be sad, and yet they use the time and gifts that God has given them to bless and to bring glory to God. The man who had one of the greatest impact on my young faith longed to be married and to have his own children. He was the funniest man that I ever met, but he privately suffered with a great depression. And I remember the day whenever our family got a phone call to tell us that he'd been found in his home, alone, dead, at the age of 45, with a blood clot. Through Isaiah, God gave this astounding promise to those who cannot have children, but were still devoted to God's ways. He said, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I said verse 16 wasn't easy either. The ESV study Bible, I know some of you have it. It says this is one of the hardest verses to translate. And it tells us that the word is not the man who does not love his wife, but actually the man who hates his wife. There's no reason to doubt the accuracy of your Bible because though the emphasis is different, you can see from these different translations that the point is clear. Either God is saying, I hate divorce, or the subject is the man who hates and divorces his wife. One tells us what God thinks of divorce, and the other tells us what a man divorcing his wife thinks of her, and aren't both true. He covers his garment with violence. It's very strong language. It's that same word violence that God said, when he looked down on all the earth, this is what he saw. And so he flooded the earth in Noah's day. God's saying to these men, abandoning your wife is like clothing yourself with cruelty. It does violent damage to the covenant and to the wife because in this day and age, she would have been left without her dignity, without protection. She was in a society where women didn't have rights if they weren't married. An unbiblical divorce is destructive and it offends God. He does hate divorce in this way because it is the collapse of something that he has designed as a picture of the gospel itself for human flourishing. A godly Christian marriage should be a powerful testimony and example to the unbelievers that we live and work beside. But I want us to spend a little bit of time now thinking about the state of marriage today because the family has always been the foundational unit in a nation. The spiritual state of Israel was decaying largely because the marriages in Israel were dishonoring. What about our society? 
Well, the LGBT revolution did not begin with campaigns for same-sex marriage. We can trace it back quite easily to campaigns for easier, quicker divorce. Divorce rates are on the rise again in the UK, and only a very small percentage of them are stipulating adultery as a reason. But you don't even need to stipulate anymore in parts of the UK, because no-fault divorce has been introduced, despite how disastrous it's been in America. England and Wales introduced it last year. And online divorce applications rose by a massive 92% last April compared to the previous year. And that kind of statistic should shock us because it's appalling to God who created marriage, not the state. Here's how our Deputy Prime Minister talks about no-fault divorce. He says, the breakdown of marriage can be agonizing for all involved, especially children. So far, so true, Dominic. We want to reduce the acrimony couples endure and end the suffering of children. And they say that the new law lightens the burden of unhappiness, especially on children caught in the middle. And that's supposed to be a sophisticated sentence. But we know that it's complete nonsense. Because if you wreck the stable institution that God has made for children to thrive in through the nurture of mother and father, you will not lighten the burden of unhappiness on children. Author Walker Percy referred to divorce as the death of a small civilization. And I think that's right. It's the death of the smallest and the first civilization that God designed, the family. And when it's easier and quicker to destroy that small civilization, you will increase the disaster for the larger civilization. Did you know that children from broken homes are nine times more likely to commit crimes than those brought up in stable families? They're twice as likely to live in poverty. Daughters who live without fathers, and I've checked this so many times because I couldn't believe it, are 711% more likely to have children as teenagers, 164% more likely to have premarital births, and 92% more likely to get divorced themselves. So to summarize, family breakdown leads to societal breakdown and spiritual meltdown. So is marriage doomed? Pessimistic estimates are that we have a 40% divorce rate in the UK, but that's about the same percent as the obesity rate. And a 40% rate of obesity does not mean you're 40% likely to be obese. You can make sensible choices and practice good behaviors if you want to avoid an unhealthy diet and an unhealthy marriage. And I wanna make it clear that everything I suggest is based on full dependence on the Holy Spirit to work because both spouses need to be daily renewed in their minds and sanctified through the word. And the Spirit works by his word. And I'm aware of my limited six years of marriage and daily learning from my own mistakes, but I did want to make some suggestions. If you want a healthy marriage, you need to refuse some of the sinful habits that belong to your old way of life like refusing to watch pornography, refusing to enter into unhealthy, risky friendships with the opposite sex if they require spending time alone. You need to resist the tendency to be lazy and let your spouse do all the chores. You need to resist the temptation to make your week so busy that you have no time for your children or your wife or your husband. 
And that sounds like a lot of thou shalt not. What about positive choices and behaviors that the Bible commends to us? Well, I think it's important that we do date our spouse, regardless of how long we've been married, that we do eat meals together, that we do make time to pray together and read a portion of God's word at a time that works for both of you. I'm not prescribing anything. I am merely suggesting. I know that every family is unique and there are unique challenges and time restraints. Could we resolve to put our phones away and pay attention to our spouse when they're talking to us? Show a genuine interest in their day. My own weakness in this area is why I know how important it is. Do attend and serve in your local church together. Let your children see that you have a loving commitment to the local church. Christians are not immune from the things that Israel were struggling with, giving up on their spouse, seeking a new one for financial or sexual reasons. And we're not immune from neglecting the work of marriage. One marriage therapist said, love doesn't commit suicide, we have to kill it. Though it often simply dies of our neglect. There is work to be done in our marriages, but it should be the kind of work that stems from love for God and love for your spouse. Because grace gives your marriage a lifetime warranty. Pray for grace and pray for patience in your marriage or in those around you if you don't have one. And if a couple have not been disabused of the lie that marriage is a passive thing, both couples will stay happily, madly in love together forever, they're probably not ready to get married. Because it isn't sexual attraction, shared interests, mutual friends, mutual interests, or other genuinely good things that keep a marriage going. It's the commitment that you both have to each other's spiritual growth. And that's something that the late Tim Keller was very good at teaching. His book is in there as well. How tragic then, if a couple have been married for dozens of years, but only one of them is still passionate about the Lord's work. Maybe the other one's still content to stay at home on the sofa. And you get to that stage where you're just depressingly watching the news, but you take cold comfort in the fact that everything you said would happen in the world did happen in your lifetime. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. We must continually be committed to pushing our other half to grow in their passion for God. Because marriage and worship go hand in hand. When both of you are pursuing Christ's kingdom and elevating God's desires above your own, you will enhance both your worship and your marriage. Because as Richard said, marriage is about the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. It was never primarily about us. It's about Christ's relationship with his church and his willingness to lay down his life for us. It's about loving sacrifice that brings glory to God the Father. Christ is the perfect bridegroom for the imperfect bride. None of us should think that our relationships are perfect, whatever those relationships are. But Christ is the Lord of grace and compassion who restores our brokenness when we run to him. <clears throat> God has multiple grounds to divorce us daily because of our faithlessness. Yet God faithfully loves us and has joined himself and his honor to us, marrying us to himself 
forever. So God repeats himself at the end of Malachi 2. He speaks again to these unfaithful husbands. And look what he says in verse 16. Guard yourselves in your spirit. We all must do that. Married or not, guard yourself in your spirit with the Holy Spirit. Because Christ died, rose, and ascended in order to give us his helper. So, married, single, widowed, or divorced, we each know our own feelings in personal relationships and the damage that those feelings do with our relationship with God. But we can praise God because he has promised in his word, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. There's much more that could be said about this sensitive, vitally important issue. And I hope I've been faithful to God's word and sensitive and in some ways helpful as we all seek to work on our marriages or whatever personal relationships we have because our horizontal relationships affect our vertical relationships. If you remain single on earth or are divorced or widowed or married, God invites all of us to be wedded to him God invites all of us unfaithful sinners into an eternal covenant with him through faith in Jesus, which as we were thinking about earlier, will be consummated when Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, comes to take his bride. And then Revelation 19.7 will be fulfilled. And we'll finish with this. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh God, you know our weaknesses. You know that we've all been unfaithful to you. We confess our unworthiness to be in a covenant with you. But we thank you for our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has promised to keep us and to make us more like himself every day. Thank you for his promise to return and to take us to be with him. We look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You told Isaiah that as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so you will rejoice over us. We don't deserve your faithful love, but we thank you so much for it. Lord, for those seeking a godly spouse, please help them. Give them wisdom and discernment. Give them patience and strength in the waiting and the seeking. For those who have been severely hurt in marriage and for those who have been bereaved, we ask for your healing, your comfort, and for your love to overflow in their lives. May we always care for them in our church. And for those of us who are married, forgive our mistakes, guard our spirit, bless our marriages, that they would look more like the pictures of the beautiful gospel they were designed to be. For Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen.